0: let's turn to the book of Genesis and 49 chapter 49 this is the last time in the in the series that we're going to be at Genesis gonna have a oh Yeah, we've been looking at the book of Genesis for four years, I think now, three or four years. Uh, Every kind of um, spring term, we've been looking at the book of Genesis. And today, we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis chapter 49. Now, last week, Tim spoke excellently on uh, kind of natural fathering in the natural realm. But today, we're going to be looking at spiritual fathering, spiritual mothering, or if you're not so old, spiritual older brothering, or spiritual older sistering. But the point is, is that as I've just said, the local church, above everything, is meant to be a family. Our God is a father, and his church is meant to be a family. We're meant to be those that pour our lives into each other. And so today, we're going to see a man called Jacob, and his life actually takes up almost half the book of Genesis is all about Jacob. And this guy, if you don't know about, much about Jacob, he has made lots of serious blunders in his life, which I find very encouraging, because I kind of relate to him in that way. But today, bless him, aged 147 years old, on his deathbed, you can just picture the scene somewhere in the Middle East, the lights fading, and there's a 147 year old man, he pulls his sons together, you can imagine, 12 sons round the bed and he probably whispered the words they were about to read because he was so frail and so often in Jacob's life he's got it wrong. He hasn't said what he should have said but today, praise God, in the last few moments of his life the words we're about to read are absolute gold dust he probably whispers these words over his sons who then become the 12 tribes of Israel he's going to speak to them and we have the privilege it's like we're right there at the bedside and what I want to understand is this guy he wasn't a great father in many ways okay unfortunately he was 147 before he he got it right (laughs) and my heart is that for anyone here anyone here ever discipled someone or mentored someone, hand in the air, you just don't care. Anyone here uh, wanting to do it in the future to disciple someone, to mentor someone, hopefully every other hand is going up. Anyone here ever been mentored or discipled by someone? Yeah, this year our huge emphasis on widespread discipleship, that we would see every single human in this church, either discipling, mentoring someone else, or receiving it, or in many parts, both. That's our passion. And what we're about to see today in these dying words of Jacob is his kind of crowning moment. It's where the words that he ushered, that he utters rather, give us like a toolkit. They give us an equipping as to how to be good spiritual fathers or spiritual mothers or good spiritual sisters or brothers. So want wants to read these precious words and to learn from them. And notice they are words of praise and blame. They are words of encouragement, but they're words with an edge as well. Let's read from verse one. And then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn. Now, you know what it's like when you're, uh, you're having a conversation with someone? Even men have this, men who can't multitask. If when someone says your name, what happens? You can be in the middle of a conversation, you hear it, right? Everyone's like that. And suddenly... This precious moment, these are the final words he can be saying to his kids, to his sons. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their wilfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. But Judah is a lion cub. From, my pra- from, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. <laughs> nice. Crouching between the sheepfolds, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his head, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan, he shall judge the people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful thorns and Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by spring. His branches run over the wall. up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, in the evening dividing the spoil. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Father, help us now as we look at your precious word. Lord, I pray that you will teach us and guide us so that we could be a people who are those that spiritually pour our lives into one another. Amen. Amen. So today I want us to do two things. I want us to ask two questions. First of all, what did he say? Okay, what did he actually say? And then secondly, after we spent a few minutes looking at what he said and feeling probably thoroughly challenged, that what he actually said was magnificent, stunning words of spiritual wisdom that makes us all feel a little bit inferior and think, how could we ever disciple or invest in someone again? We'll then come to our second question, which is, and how? How did he say these words? What were the words like? And then how did he say them? First of all, then, what did he say? Why am I so excited here today? What, why am I excited about these words that he says? I should encourage you to go back over these words. We've only got a few minutes today and meditate on them. Because in two ways, these words are stunning in their style and in their substance. These words are incredible in terms of helping us to be a people who disciple and mentor and spiritually father and mother well in their style. Say, style style and in their substance. Say substance. Substance. Okay. First of all, notice the style. The style of these words, don't miss anything. All of the Bible's perfect, all right? Every element of it. The style of these words is both prophetic and poetic. Thank you very much. Prophetic and poetic. It's prophetic which means it's hugely accurate. It's like an arrow to these lads, okay? Bash, 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 bash. Pfft. Like arrows, prophetic. But it's also poetic there's a heart element. It's not a kind of piercing in a bad way. It comes with a heart emotion. So let's look at that then. So in summary, just to summarize the 12 prophecies he's just brought, the first three were like, uh -uh, weren't very good over Reuben, Judah, no Reuben, Simeon and Levi. He gave two fantastic prophecies you noticed over Judah and Joseph. And then the last seven were kind of pretty good, a little bit of a mix. So let's see if I can remember these. Over the seven, they were over Zubalin, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Benjamin. Thank you very much. Over those seven, he spent all week doing that. Uh, uh, seven <laughs> Over those seven, it's a kind of, you know, a mixed thing. But this is the thing. If you are a parent, you will know every child you have is different. Amen? Amen. And just to say, throw it in there, we're expecting a third. Hallelujah. Yeah, had a little scan this week, a little scan on Friday, and the woman was like, oh my life, I've never seen such an active child. I was like, what? Have you seen Daisy and Lily? We deserve a a laid back one, God. So I don't believe in God this week. No, I do really. But so anyway, um, every child is different. Every child is different. And so what he says is very different over his sons, because they're all different. They've been brought up in the same house. He's love them in large measure in the same way, and yet they've all turned up different. So just throw it in, you can do the same things with with all your kids, love them in the same way, and some can go brilliant and some not so much. So what we see here then is that it's prophetic. Now, I wish we could go through each of these, but what I want you to look at this is realize this man prophesying in his dying breath, there's the light of prophecy in his eyes, even though he's fading away about to go to glory, his eyes are ablaze, just, you know, His eyes were ablaze. You can sense these eyes as he prophesies over his sons. And what is amazing is that with every single son, he prophesies something very specific. And what history tells us is that every single prophecy comes to pass. It's amazing. Let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, he he, he prophesies over Reuben. Reuben was his firstborn. It's a big deal in those days. You would have received everything. But because he slept with one of his dad's wives, Bit weird. He does that, which is profoundly awful and simple. As a result of that, we see that he actually forfeits his inheritance. And that's why his dad says to him, Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Now, what we notice about the tribe of Reuben over the coming hundred years, this is a stunning, okay? Not a single king ever comes from the tribe of Reuben. We notice not a single prophet ever comes from the tribe of Reuben. Not a single judge ever comes from a tribe of Reuben. It's almost like God knew what he was saying through this man. He, God speaks through him and says, because of what you've done, there's going to be consequences to your sin. And it's exactly borne out in history. Let's give you another example. Simeon and Levi are brothers. And he says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi had committed mass murder a few chapters earlier. Okay, They committed mass murder. And so when you've got kids that are violent and squabble, any teachers here or parents, what's the first thing that you do? You separate them. Or any policemen, in fact, or policewomen. You separate people who are violent, okay? You get them apart from each other. And that's what he's saying. Simeon and Levi, you know what I mean? You've actually forfeited your rights to the inheritance of land that everyone else is going to get. Isn't that amazing that the leader of the priesthood, Levi, the tribe of Levi, was a mass murderer? that is the demonstration of the grace of God, I think. That's very encouraging. But the Levites never had their own land. They were scattered. And then the tribe of Simeon, when you look at the tribe of Simeon, hundreds of years later, when they go into the land, guess what? Their area and their tribe is so small, eventually they just get absorbed into the tribe of Judah. They also have a forfeit because of their sin, and he prophesies it. He prophesies over Judah. He look at this in verse eleven. He says he talks about vines and vines and wine and vines. Is it a coincidence? That guess which area of Israel Judah end up in hundreds of years later, in the south. Is that a coincidence? That's where all the wine is. That's where all the grapes is. God knew that. He prophesied it. It was specific. It was accurate. It was like an amazing arrow. It goes on. Every single one bears out. Zubaland shall dwell at the shore of the sea. The tribe of Zubaland. guess what? They were between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It's stunning. I could go on, but we'll be here all day. Every single prophecy comes to pass. So let me ask you this, okay? If you are, are investing in someone, and you might be more a spiritual older brother, you might not be quite their f- spiritual father, are you prophesying into their lives? In the Bible, we see that there is this amazing expectation. 1 Corinthians 14, it says, pursue the way of love, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but particularly the gift of prophecy. There's this incredible passion that God has for prophecy, because prophecy brings encouragement. It brings change. It brings transformation. It has a God element. These weren't just nice words. These were prophetic words. So as a church, we prize, we stir, we expect prophecy. And for some of you here, I want to say, let me encourage you. As you start to disciple, invest in others. Never let it go a day where you don't expect prophecy. Amen. Never let it happen that you just have a nice cup of coffee together and say, "You doing all right? Yeah, good. See ya." No, no. Expect Lord. And I listen. Listen. I'll be honest with you. I well, as soon as I think about prophesying, it still is something I have to push through fear on. I think God's not going to speak to me, and I'm a church leader. So let that encourage you. But God wants to use us to speak to each other. I remember years ago, for years I used to disciple guys and I still do now, but in a slightly different context. And, and we'd have a nice time together and then always the last half an hour we'd actually get around to praying. And it was then that I would feel often God to put an impression or a picture on my heart. It's normally very simple. But it was that time where I thought, oh, thank goodness we got to that. That's actually where the power is. That's where it goes from being just hanging out as friends, as good as that is, to having this kind of prophetic element. Does that make sense? I yearn for that all across the uh, prophetic culture where people are just speaking. It didn't all have to be, love saith the Lord. It's just natural and supernatural, all interwoven together. That's what God wants for us, friends. Do you understand that? We've got to prize it, feed ourselves with the word so that what comes out of us is God's word ablaze with specific accuracy. That's what he wants. I remember years ago, a guy called Dave Devonish, who is a bit of a father in the movement. And he doesn't know me at all. It was just this younger leaders gathering. And he was just walking around praying for people. And he just grabbed me and he just prophesied, he just said, bringer of blessing. (laughs) Not exactly, you know, massively specific or kind of life-changing, but it was for me. Honestly, it like hit me. It's like, I'm going to own that. It's not just Dave saying, all right, Tom, so this is what I'm saying. Let me challenge you directly. If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're discipling or mentoring others, expect to prophesy. But not just prophetic, the the style here is not just accurate, it's also poetic. Look at the words he uses. I love this. He uses words like like vines and donkeys and lionesses and lions and grapes and everlasting hills. This guy has got a heart, okay? He's got a soul. He's not just being specific and accurate. He loves these guys, even the ones that have completely bodged it. You know, he loves them. Put your hand on your heart. Okay, put your hand on your heart. Slightly to the left, I'm told. Put your hand on your heart. God wants us to speak words which are clear and prophetic and specific, but he wants us to give our lives to each other. Okay, you can take it off now. To give our hearts. Do you understand that? Now, we have to fight because life is busy, because at times when you give your heart to people and you pour your lives into them, it's tiring, isn't it? It is. It's emotionally tiring. But you know what? That isn't a reason for us not to do it. He gives his heart. I love Terry Virgo, who leaves this movement. He's an emotional guy. He's an apostolic father, more than anything. He's a father. And spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers, spiritual older brothers and sisters, there's a poetic or an emotional involvement. Oh, I love all that's happening with the students this year. For the first time ever, hitting 200 students in this church. Praise God. I love that. But I also love the fact that when I talk to all the new Christian students and I'm saying, is there someone kind of, you know, like a, someone a little bit further in the Lord who's wanting to draw alongside? Every time I've asked one, they've said, yeah, there's Jim or Fred or whatever or Belinda. You know, there's someone who's there who's actually drawing me in. Guys, this doesn't just happen in your small groups, outside of small groups, in the whole of our life, making it happen, having breakfast together in the evening, morning, noon and night, pouring ourselves. It's a glorious thing. Do you know, friends, we live in a nation and in a city without many good fathers and family units fall apart. And if and amidst that we can be a blazing community of profound love, giving our time, that's the most precious commodity into our lives, giving our hearts, expecting prophetic, man, that's amazing. Amen. Thank you, Q. It is amazing, amen? That kind of community is what Jesus said. If they see your love for one another, they'll know that God is real. He didn't say, if you get sermons that are really accurate with lots of alliteration, then you'll convert a city. No, no. When I see your love, that's when people go, wow, wow. Oh, that's what I want to live and that's what I want to give my life for. But not just in style, prophetic and poetic, but also in substance. He was edgy and encouraging, both. you notice that? Edgy and encouraging. What do I mean edgy? Look, what well, he says to Reuben, because Reuben, you slept with one of my wives, you have forfeited your rights, okay? Sin has consequences. As this came out through the worship, we have a holy God, okay? And this was clearly something Jacob knew. He loved him, I'm sure, dearly, but he wasn't going to mollycoddle him. You know, one of our key verses this year that we're living with as a church is Hebrews 3.13, which says, exhort one another, Every day, as long as it is so called cool today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, how does God stop your heart getting hard, getting hard? by someone saying to you, bro, your heart's getting hard. your heart is getting hard i 'm going to come and i 'm going to lo-. how much you t- and actually getting in each other 's faces lovingly and in grace, but they' nevertheless exhorting, exhorting, exhorting every day. I need people who do that who say, "I will invest in you, Tom." And I will ask you difficult questions about your marriage and about your thought life and about the secret place. I will do that because I love you and I want you to grow. We all need it. We all need it. You know, we're not called to be isolated. To Simeon and Levi, he says, because of your violence, you're going to be scattered. And as I've said, they lost their inheritance to tribes, to to, to tribal land. You know, Mark Driscoll says this, he says, hard words produced soft hearts but soft words produce hard hearts. If we just constantly, oh, didn't just softy, softy all the time, what actually happens is we're not true to what the Bible says. And actually, we produce a hard hearted people. If Your heart is hard. Actually, what you need is not a bit of Play-Doh going, that's not going to change it. You need someone lovingly to come in and exhort you every day as long as it's called today. That's why the Bible says it. I know I know that in my own life, when I get hard-hearted, I need someone who's got the guts to actually, with an edgy love, say, I love you, but there's, a, there's something missing. There's something missing in you. I want to help you. I want to challenge you. I want to come in. I remember years ago hearing PJ Smythe, who's an amazing leader, and he himself said this. He said um, one of his great spiritual fathers was a guy called Simon Pettit, and he was always very encouraging. But one day he got a call from Simon, and Simon said to him, He said, "Um, PJ, I just need to ask you a question. Is it true that you spoke to this gentleman in this certain way? And PJ said, I kind of have to admit that that's true. And he says, and PJ then says, and then what happened next was absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Simon didn't shout. He didn't scream. He didn't get aggressive. But with a fatherly firmness, he said to him, you must never do that again. You never rebuke an older man harshly. And it was like this life-changing moment for him because he, he, he knew what he was saying was so true. And it wasn't done out of a hard heart. It was done out of a soft heart, but he'd sinned. He'd actually sinned. He'd done a direct thing against what the Bible says. He'd rebuked an older man harshly. And thank God for someone like Simon who would actually lovingly get on the phone and say, I love you, but this is what it says. And it changed him. And he, I think it's almost one of those things that he remembers more than the hundred times he was just encouraged. Words that, in the right time, with a humble attitude—not self-righteously or judging—but with a humble saying, "Look, I'm delivering. I'm a messenger. It's not about me saying I'm bringing this to you. I think this says this. Do you agree?" That's the attitude. You say it's a servant saying, I'm, "I love you, but I think there's this thing." There was that element with him, with Reuben and Simeon and Levi. He didn't just say, "Oh, never mind. So you killed a few people. Never mind." He actually said, Look, "I love you, but there's a consequence. You're forgiven." but there's a consequence. And that is the atmosphere of the New Testament. You don't stop being sons. There were still his sons, but there was a consequence. So that's what we need to aim for is that being open in the right times. Hebrew 12 says that the mark of true sonship, do you know what it is? Discipline. Isn't that amazing? Do you understand that? When you're being disciplined by God, often through another person, that's the mark that you're a true daughter of the king. It's not when it's just, oh, nice. Discipline. And that should give us a vision for being disciplined, which I know sounds strange, but it's actually possible. Lovingly, encouraging. Come on, speak to me. Don't just let me, you know, don't just flatter me. Come on, we're serious about this. The king's coming. We've got to get ready. So there was an edge to it, but also there was an encouragement. You're pleased to know the overwhelming flavor of this chapter is encouraging father who loves his sons. Look, there's lots to celebrate. He says to Zebulun, your tribe are going to be near the sea. Anyone like the sea? Yeah, that's a positive thing. It's great. He's saying you're going to be near the sea. It's great. It's just nice. He's saying to Dan, you're going to be a judge. That's cool. You're going to be a judge and you're going to make sure justice is, is carried out, son. He's prophesying positive things. He says to, to Asher, you're gonna have an amazing land. You're just blessed. Your land's gonna feed kings. And he gets to Naphtali, he says, You're gonna have beautiful kids. You're gonna have amazing life. And he says to Joseph, you're gonna be a fruitful bough. You're just gonna grow and multiply. And and he goes on to say, You're gonna have people that will hate you. Notice that there. He says, You're gonna have people who will fire arrows at you. You know, whenever life is going well, people get jealous. It's just part of the deal. But hey son, don't take it personally. So there's still an edge, but it's encouraging. And then with Judah, he says to Judah, he says, Judah, you know what? You're going to be in a a beautiful place where there's vines, where your teeth are going to shine white, where your life is good. He's using poetic language to say God's going to, he's going to love you. And the thing about Judah, when you dig into his past, this is so moving. Judah got some serious things wrong. Genesis 38, we didn't have time to look at it. He slept with his daughter-in-law. Now, admittedly, he didn't know that, but It was a messy, awful thing. And this is a picture of restoration. It's a man who said, I've sinned, but Lord, I repent. And now God's speaking through his dad to say, you're going to have an amazing life. Let me say, are we an encouraging people? Not just prophetic and poetic and edgy, but are we encouraging? When we meet together, are you looking to encourage? It's a spiritual gift. And in this nation, which is so cynical, we need to burn bright. Oh, we need to burn bright. My heart, is that people who I'm investing in some way? Every single one will run ten times further than me. It was just, just that's my passion. That's our passion as an eldership: is that that will be the atmosphere of the church, raising spiritual sons and spiritual daughters. Go on, run faster. Do more things in God. That should be our attitude. Never get jealous when bigger things open up. We as an eldership want to make. I want to make it so that the church can shape things. We just, me and Tim were meeting this week earlier on with two young, passionate evangelists. And we invited them in for uh, two hours over the last couple of weeks and said, what are we missing? Well, you know, we're pastors, you're like evangelists, so we should work together, right? What are we missing? And I said to them, one of them, if you were leading this church, what would you do differently? And his little eyes were like, oh, can I really believe that? And I was like, of course you can. Of course, we want to see you contribute to this church, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, Ephesians 4. And that's the atmosphere. Do you get that? In his heart, he's wanting them to blossom. He isn't jealous or insecure. And let me be really specific. A church which wants to see this kind of atmosphere, it needs to absolutely love, cherish, and respect the older generation. Man, I love the 20s. I love the students. This church is amazing. And God, multiplied by 10. But Lord, do something even more significant, even more glorious so that we don't just become a young church. You understand my heart on that? I love, I'm not, I'm just saying that diversity is so vital for us. Yes, in age, but in colour and creed and language and everything. God's passion is for that. It's what he died for, a church that was diverse. And we live in a nation, friends, that, do you know when it talks about on the news, it talks about older people, it talks about there's more older people living than ever. They're a tax burden. What are we going to do with them all? We'll have to work a bit longer. You know, we're going to find more homes for them. It's so patronizing. It's a disgusting attitude of this nation that treats older people as if they're just kind of like patting them on the head. That's the Bible says these are like the crowning element of a people who've lived decades and they, they know how to walk with the king and they, their marriages are still together after 40, 50 years and they've been through bereavements. Man, we need those kind of... I praise the Lord for the people he's adding to this church of that, of that caliber. We need so many more. If we're going to see the city change for Christ, immature people need people who are mature. And often those people are quiet and they're humble and they don't push themselves forward, but God's grace is on them. It really is. I mean, you know, you wouldn't... The trouble with, with this nation, it doesn't see older people um, as actually a, a precious resource. You know, think about it. You'd never hear on the you know, on the, on the, on the on the news saying, Oh, we've just got so much oil. We just don't know what to do with it. There's just oil everywhere. You know, there's just more oil than we can ever but actually that's because we value oil. If that was the case, we'd go, fantastic, there's so much oil. But when we think about older people, it's a problem that there's more older people. Do you understand that? Man, we need to be a kingdom culture that is Totally the opposite to that. That's why on our video you'll see on our homepage, which celebrates the last 12 months, we very deliberately finished it with three older people, who had grey hair and were, who are we cherish and we want to we want to learn from. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm just saying, man, we need that. That's my passion. It's our passion as a church: diversity, spiritual fathers, spiritual mothers who pour their lives into this church. And just let me say that if you're 20 and you love Jesus, you can be a spiritual older brother you can be a spiritual older sister. It doesn't, it's, you know, it's not literally just about age, but where there is that, we celebrate it. So you're sitting here probably thinking, oh, blimey, okay, Tom, well, you know, I want a disciple. I want to have, have a go. I want to encourage people. But what was the prophetic and poetic and edgy and encouraging? Blimey, O'Reilly, you know, this is a bit of a tall order. I feel almost a bit under pressure. I feel a little bit like a, how can I make this happen? So we have to finish them by saying, how do we do this? What Not just what did he say, but how did he say it? What was going on in Jacob's mind and heart at that moment that enabled him to to deliver such outstanding spiritual leadership? And I think quite simply, it was his his picture of God that he was enjoying at that moment. A.W. Tozer says, what a man or woman thinks about God is the most important thing about them. What your thoughts are, your theology, what your thoughts are on a daily basis about who God is, is the most important thing about you. And what we see here, almost hidden, look at verse 10. Verse 10 is like the Everest in the Alps. I know the Everest isn't in the Alps. It's like the Mont Blanc of the Alps. Thank you, Tim, before you correct me. Yeah, Um, we see here verse 10, like is this stunning, glorious, beautiful verse that you might have missed if you're anything like me when I first looked at it. It says this, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from beneath his feet until tribute comes to him. Or you should see a footnote in your, in your Bibles. An alternative translation is until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What is this all about? Scepters, Shiloh, Tom, give us a clue. What I'm saying is this. Hidden right here is this amazing glimpse that God was giving him as the Spirit was upon him and as he was prophesying. He actually had caught a glimpse of the king. The reason that he was able to speak with such clarity and power and passion and everything else was because he had caught a glimpse of the king. And there was two things about this king that we see here that we will finish with. that There's a king who rules. Say so he's a king who rules. A king who rules. And he's a king who brings rest. Say so he's a, bring, bring, a king who brings rest king who brings rest rule and rest we find here in this verse first of all then the scepter shall not depart from judah what's a scepter a scepter is like a big iron rod and it's what queen elizabeth was given and any king or queen is given at their coronation it signifies power and authority and rule yeah it's what literally it's like i'm the boss i've got the scepter and what we understand here is is that the first tribe reuben because of the sin, they forfeited their right to be the leader of the people of Israel. And in this moment, he now says the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Say it, Judah. God was saying now, because of the sin of Reuben, I'm actually giving the authority and the leadership to a different tribe. Now you might think, big wow, Tom. Who cares? It's a big big deal. Follow this. So what we then see from that moment on is this exactly played out throughout the Old Testament. It's stunning. For example, we see this. You see this. Whenever the people of God moved from one place to another and the tabernacle moved, the tribes of Israel were all surrounding the tabernacle. Guess which tribe always led the way at the front? The tribe of? Absolutely. When uh, the kings were risen from the tribes, Guess which tribe was the, the key tribe that brought forth the kings? The tribe of Judah. When Jerusalem was established as the capital of Israel, guess which tribal land it was in? The land of Judah. When Jerusalem, sorry, when uh, Israel was taken into captivity and many of the tribes were scattered and lost their identity, guess which was the tribe that was most protected and most maintained its identity? Judah. Guess which king, guess which tribe, the king of kings, David, the king of Israel, guess which tribe he came from? You see it all the way through. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. They're the ones that are going to lead the people of God. When the ark moves, they're at the front. When kings come, they're from this place. When they go into captivity, they're the ones that are protected. The capital city, it's in Judah. And then in the first century, something stunning happens which is there is a new king and his name is Herod. And he's not from the tribe of Judah. And historians tell us, do you know what happened? There was wailing in the streets. There was wailing and people were were wailing saying, the scepter is no longer with Judah. He's not from the tribe of Judah. What's going on? He's our leader, but he's not from the tribe of Judah. And there was wailing and people were devastated thinking that God had broken his promise. What's going on? The scepter shall not depart until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is this amazing prefiguring word here talking about one who brings peace and one who brings rest and wholeness. It's it's a very related word to the word shalom. And while Herod was establishing his earthly, fleshly throne, in the corner of that nation, there was a little baby being born. And his name was Jesus. And it says the Jews were expecting Jesus to come. Sorry, that that Shiloh would come through the front door. But actually he came through the, the back door. Born in a humble stable. Born without fanfare. Not what they were expecting. But he was the true king. Shiloh had come. Shiloh would actually come, and that's why when you open up Matthew chapter one, there's a long list of names, and you think, what's this all about? It's because it's showing, historically, verifiably, that Jesus was of the line of Judah through David, right back, connected, fulfilling the prophecy that was here. and that now Jesus fully had the scepter. He was the one, the Shiloh coming. and now the scepter, the authority, which had been temporarily with the tribe of Judah, was now changing forever to a real king. Turn with me to Revelation 19, Revelation 19, because what we have to understand is this, is so often when we think of Jesus, we think of the humble carpenter in Galilee, and that's of course true, and for 33 years of his life, he was a humble man, the incarnation here on earth. But what the Bible tells us is that for all eternity past and all eternity future, that's not the correct image, that's not the totality of who Jesus is right now. Or was And whenever throughout the Old Testament, prophets caught a glimpse into heaven, they didn't see a humble Galilean carpenter. They actually saw a king. They saw a king who was ruling. King, you see it in Isaiah 6 or in Job 12. You see it again in Ezekiel. And suddenly here we see now in Revelation 19 when John, in the spirit, he catches a glimpse and look what he sees. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Our God is a God who is absolutely loving and incredibly faithful, but he is true. He won't just cover up sin. He will speak words of great truth. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Every single human who's ever lived cannot escape the piercing gaze of this king the motives of our heart, every intention of our soul is watched by this one who has flames of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Why blood? Because it cost him his life. His blood was shed. The Bible tells us Jesus died on a cross. His blood was shed to win you and to win me. And so he has an eternal reminder of it on his robe. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the picture of the God of the Bible. This is Jesus, the king. He's not just some nice guy who tells us to recycle, to quote Mark Driscoll. He's a God who is ascended on high and he is holy and he is perfect and he is transcendent. And he is the judge who we will all stand before. And what we have to understand is there is something in the heart of Jacob, something that he has caught in his spirit that means that he has caught a massive picture of God. And if we want to be those that pour our lives into others, this is the simple point. We need to see a king who rules. We need to have a picture in our souls every day, fighting for it, saying, Lord, you've become small in my heart. How am I ever going to invest in this person? We can sometimes put off discipling other people because we feel so, you know, so lacking in ourselves. And that's the time to say, God, make yourself big again. Become the king again in my, in my heart. Have you seen the scepter? Is the scepter vivid in our hearts? Are we living with a king who is powerful and mighty Often at times we can over on discipleship material because actually, deeply, deep down, we just have got a small picture of God and therefore we overfocus on that rather than actually when God is filling our souls, whatever form it comes when you get together is secondary. As God becomes bigger, the king who rules. And this is what you see, the scepter. The scepter is there. But what we also finally see is not just that he's a king who rules, but listen to this and with this we'll finish. He's a king who brings rest. He's a king who brings rest. Because you see, when you start to see more and more this mighty king the Bible talks about, and that this king sustains all things, say all things, by the word of his power. Can you do that? No, neither can I. He sustains everything, every planet, every solar system, Every star, every heartbeat. Do you know our our hearts beat 100,000 times every single day? Do you know that our bodies create 28 million new cells every second? Do you know that is the stunning thing? Do you know there's over 60,000 miles of blood vessels in your body? That's twice around the world in your body. Think about the level of wonder in this world. And our God sustains it. He's a king who rules. And as you start to realize that, as Jacob caught a picture in his heart, He's a God who rules, the scepter's now with him. Shiloh's come. The actual understanding of this word Shiloh is that it's peace. That's what the word means. It means peace and wholeness and rest. And that's why in Matthew chapter 11, we see Jesus say these very, very famous words. But he actually looks at the people and he says this, come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say come and and we'll try and work it out. He says, I will give it to you as a gift. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This world above everything is screaming out. We need rest for our souls. We live in a nation and in a world that is anything but at rest you talk to the average person and their souls are exhausted. They're tired of work. They're tired of family. They're tired of their marriage. They move. They hate this nation, so they move to another nation and they suddenly realize it might be sunny, but actually the problems are still there. This world is scrabbling around to find rest. And the only place that we really find rest for our souls is in the loving arms of a king who rules, but has in his sovereign mercy provided a way through the cross to not obliterate us, but to adopt us. Oh, friends, this is amazing. When Jacob said, until Shiloh comes, this is world-changing news. And Shiloh has come. Shiloh has come. It might be not a word you know, but the power, the peace bringer, the rest bringer, the burden bearer, that song we sang, he bore my sin, that sin that weighed on me, that meant I could never approach God he bore it and he bore your sin and if you don't know Jesus today you can simply run into this place today you can run in a moment to him you can say father I want to I want to trust in the cross I want to say Lord I want to believe and trust that Jesus my sin somehow in a way I don't understand was put on you and therefore the weight of separation now is gone and you've given me your righteousness." In place. This is the rest. It means we have rest this side of death. It means we have rest going into death. It means we have rest in eternity. Rest, rest, rest is the inheritance. Hebrews tells us you don't have to just wait till heaven to get rest. You can enter the rest now. That's why actually the real Sabbath, the fulfillment of the Sabbath is actually 24 seven. It's the new covenant. It used to be a day and there's nothing wrong with taking days off. But the real Sabbath now is entering to the ongoing rest that I'm loved by Jesus. He's the king. He's holy. He rules. He sustains everything. He should have obliterated me and judged me 10,000 times. And yet in stunning, shocking, world-changing, cosmically significant grace, he has taken my sin upon his son. And now with a smile that melts the hardest hearts, he welcomes me. Isn't that good news? Hallelujah. It's the greatest news. It's the rest that never changes. Even when externally everything's rubbish and life's falling apart, you can know a rest. You have to strive for it. Hebrew says it's real. You have to get, get in there. God, give me fresh perspective, but it's available. And I tell you guys, if we're going to spiritually father and spiritually mother and spiritually older sister and brother, if we're going to do that, we need to have a massive picture of Jesus. Do you understand that? Don't ever I mean, just for yourselves, but particularly, often I find it's when you actually start discipling someone else that you get changed even more than when you're being discipled. Because suddenly you're like, they're looking to me to help them. God, become big. God, remind me that I, you see this thing, guys, you can't change anyone, okay, to just take the pressure off yourself. You can't change another person. Only the king can, because he rules and he brings rest. So our spiritual atmosphere in terms of investing in others should be challenging because we have a king who rules, full of faith for change, but in a place of grace that he's taken the burden. His spirit is poured out and his spirit means that now we can change. We can change by the grace and the power of the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available today. And so God wants us to again and again say, Lord, we're a church of what, 400, 450? There's like 80,000 people in this city. Man, if we're going to actually, yeah, you're looking overwhelmed, rightly so. We can't do it. Jesus gave us commission that was completely impossible. It's completely impossible. You can't change anyone. You can't barely lead yourselves, let's be honest. But if we're going to see the city changed, this is the secret. We get a massive, hourly, daily, minute by minute, revelation of the king. You rule, you're in control. And therefore, you don't just rule, but you're, you're the one who brings rest. You know, that, that changes things. The amount of meetings I've gone into, and I've been thinking, okay, I have to make things happen. And it just dawned on me. And I remember it, partly it was through Mike Betts, who's a real spiritual father to me, seeing how he, as one of my spiritual fathers, when he approached meetings where he was going to have to lead it, rather i thinking, oh, I've got to change this thing, I've got to make it happen. He just said, it was a rest in him. He just knew only the spirit can do this. Only the spirit can change anything. I thought, yeah learn from me, says Jesus. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's true. It's actually true. When you realize it's not about you doing it. And what that gives is an appetite to do more. When you catch that, when you get it in your soul that he's a king who rules and can change, but a king of rest also, it means you just want to get stuck in because you're going to see the spirit of God through you changing someone. So let's stand to our feet. Let's welcome the band back. We're going to respond in a final song. We're going to break bread as a wonderful gift from God that reminds us of our Savior's body broken for us and his, his blood shed for us. This is If you're a Christian here today, this is a wonderful re- reminder and a gift from God. Let's do this in an atmosphere of celebration and worship. We've got a, a, a prayer team in red t-shirts who will be on my right, your left. And it may well be that you've just been challenged today or encouraged. Hey, listen, don't leave this place without getting prayer. We want a culture where every week dozens of people are being prayed for, not just at moments of crisis. You might say, Lord, I want to prophesy again in my, in my group, in, my, in my, the guys I, I meet with. I want to be emotional. I want to actually love them. I want to care. Have to, you know, Lord, pray for me. It might be that you think, Lord, I, I want to actually have the courage to challenge and be a bit edgy. Or it might be that I just, I just don't ever encourage them, really. I'm flat. All those things. Let's receive. Come, break bread. Let's drink some wine or juice. And then I just encourage many of you to receive fresh power from God so that we can be a church that spiritually mothers and spiritually fathers really well.